when is the next feast? If you already looked on the calendar, some of you have already. I know you have. Uh, I know we did. Uh, opening night, I believe, is October 16th, 2024. So really only a couple of days from right now. We'll be somewhere, and it'll just be a few hours, and we'll be gearing up to watch good old Mr. Weston with an opening night message uh, to greet all of us at the feast and trying to help our mindset be right. And surely, like me, you have thought a little bit about where you might be next year, right? The lists don't always change a whole lot. Uh, we really enjoyed, like I said, Leamington and Russell, and part of our discussion while we were there was, will we want to be here again next year? And we thought it was wonderful if we were assigned there again next year. It wouldn't bother us at all. Uh, they're not, Russell is not a gigantic metropolis. I think we stayed, well, the place where we stayed might have been the whole city. Almost seemed like it was. It was really pretty small, surrounded by beautiful fields and aspen trees, and we kind of made it a personal mission to visit every little coffee shop we could in the surrounding area, which took some driving to do. Not actually many, maybe one Tim Hortons, just so you know. You know it's a sparse area in Canada when you can only find one Tim Hortons, you know, in a certain radius, because I think they just grow there like, America has the tale of Johnny Appleseed, and Canada has the tale of Tim Horton, where he just went panning coffee beans everywhere, and they just started sprouting up across the land. Uh, it was beautiful, and we thought, well, you know, if we were sent there again next year, that would be fine. We would be fine with that. The people were fantastic. Uh, and I guess I suppose I should have said that they all said, hello, A. Uh, the accent was pleasantly thick here and there. Uh, some of them were upset that I didn't talk more Texan. They were looking forward to someone with a big, thick accent, and I, I don't know that I have one, though sometimes it does arise. But in the end, really, we know uh, in the ministry, you don't really control where you are sent. That's the job of church administration. That's part of what you do is you go where you're needed. And so they do take feedback from us of where we'd like to go. Uh, and then they'll pick amongst those if they can. But if they really need you to go someplace else, they send you someplace else. And really, in your case, wherever you may have perhaps thought about where you would be on October 16th next year, well, you really don't control that much either, do you? I mean, one hand, you might want to transfer and it, the site may be full. Uh, secondly, you don't even know where all the sites are going to be. We don't know necessarily where God is going to place his name. We do have a lot of contracts signed. You have Mr. McNair and Mr. Uh, uh, Tyler Wayne have worked hard on those, but they can tell you tales of somehow there's some time where contracts don't make a difference. God just somehow seems to show us that no contract, just a piece of paper, you know, things change and suddenly you're not going uh, where you thought you would go. Or even if nothing changes, Maybe the list stays exactly the same as it was last year, and you'll be going to your assigned area, and so you're pretty sure you'd be allowed to go, but you don't know what state you're going to be in, right? You don't know what your condition of health will be. Many people were surprised this year. They didn't plan for the Feast of 2023 not to be able to go when they were thinking about it in 2022. We don't know our circumstances. And if anything, the events of the last great day in the land of Israel certainly remind us that there's very little in the world around us that we actually can control. How many of us, if we had control of things, would never have allowed the atrocities that we've been hearing about ever since? So where are you going to be this time, October 16th? We don't know. You don't know. 
When I say October 16th, I do mean 2024. You might have a good idea of where you're going to be in a couple of days. But spiritually, where you will be on October 16th, 2024, that is something you and I both have a great deal of control over. In fact, in the end, isn't that the most important thing to invest in right now? Not, oh, am I going to be across the seas? Am I going to be in a different country? Are we going to stay local? Are we going to go global? Where are we going to go? Where will we be spiritually in our relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ, in our walk in this life, in how we act when we know his eyes are shining on us at all times? That place, that spiritual place, that's far more important come a year from now. We'll all be sitting there, again, watching Mr. Weston on a big screen or in some areas they just have a tiny screen. But it's who we will be in that seat watching the opening night message. That's what makes the biggest difference. And that, frankly, is the one thing we have most control over. And so I'd like to talk about that today. I'd like to talk about things we can do to determine where we will be next year when the Feast of Tabernacles begins in 2024. Particularly, I'd like to discuss four specific principles that can help us both, help you and help me, determine where we will be spiritually at the beginning of the feast next year. The title of the sermon is, Where Will You Be Next Feast? Where Will You Be Next Feast? And before I jump into the four things, I'd like to say that I hope our reflection on the events of what has gone on in the Middle East only heightens our concern about such questions. We're living in a time where there are two major wars going on. A major war in Europe that we already understood had the ability, if gone unchecked, to suck this nation in as well. And now a war going on in the Middle East, including American captives, for which we have sent uh, battle groups to the region. They're ostensibly to make sure that no other powers get involved. But what do we plan on doing if other powers get involved? We are perhaps living in one of the most dangerous times in human history. And it's easy to look back on other times in the past and think, well, I don't know, it was really dangerous this time right before World War II or right before World War I. Maybe things were a little more chaotic. Maybe there were larger questions. You know, that's possible. But at the same time, no one had nuclear weapons until the end of World War II. No one had the destructive capacity that we have now. Back then, the Japanese congratulated themselves. They were able to make some sort of makeshift balloons and other things to actually float over the United States, and they celebrated dropping a bomb or so. You know, they were able somehow to reach us with these primitive things and finally actually drop, you know, a bomb or two. I don't want to go into the history of that. I'm not as familiar with it other than I have heard it before, and I think it's fascinating. Nowadays, it's part of, for instance, uh, in North Korea, that's part of the dictator there's boast is that, oh yeah, we could rain death and destruction on various places in the United States. We're living in a remarkably dangerous time, but all the more, brethren, spiritually dangerous. 
spiritually dangerous. I won't turn there for the sake of time. I'm just trying to set the stage for how important these things are in terms of making sure we know what spiritual direction we are headed in and focusing on determining where we'll be next year. Just a comment that in the discussion between God and Cain, before he killed his brother, Cain warned him that sin is crouching at your door. Your task, your job is to master it. And yet it is crouching at your door. If left unchecked, it will seize you. And the language there in the Hebrew communicates this kind of sense of a crouching animal. Like an animal that is crouching because it so desperately desires to consume whatever will come out through the threshold. And the events of the last great day have given me a new picture of that, frankly, in terms of what took place in Israel. Just seeing the, the, the walls and the fences and seeing them breached and seeing people pouring through those holes, knowing that every single person I see looks like a human being. They look like someone I could meet on the street. They look like they could be a neighbor. And yet, events showed that clearly in the heart of every single one of those human beings was the desire to rape, maim, murder, torture, and destroy. And once those holes were breached, they just poured through like an army of evil. And when I think of sin crouching at the door now, this is, at least for me, my new picture. Just like they were waiting at the edges, longing for the opportunity, Brethren, that's the world that we inhabit. When I don't mean the world around us, I mean the world around each of us. It's something we are to take seriously. That warning God gave to Cain 6,000 years ago resonates today. To take things seriously. It's so easy to get caught up in the relative minutiae of being in the church. I, I had a discussion a, a few days ago with a fella, a very nice fella. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want anything to say to make it seem like he's not a nice fella. He seemed like a real nice fella, uh, but he was from a different, uh, uh, he attended with a different church and a uh, different church of God, if you will. And he just wanted to let me know how much he appreciated some sermons of mine that he had heard. And it was really nice for him to call me. I appreciate that he did. That was kind. But, and he talked about how I, he doesn't get to attend living anymore because he just wanted to attend everywhere. Uh, and the minister sort of told him, well, you know, it sounds like you're kind of confused. You need to settle some things. Why don't you not attend here? You know, and go attend someplace else because that tends to breed confusion. This idea that it doesn't make a difference. I'll go here now and I'll go someplace else later. And none of us, all of us, it, everything's exactly the same. I covered that in a recent sermon. And so, and he was really bothered by that. You know, he just couldn't fathom the idea that Jesus Christ would, would, would say, no, don't attend here until you get, get yourself sorted out. And I had to say, wow. I mean, thank you for your nice comments about my sermon, but I, I kind of agree. And when I, the only reason I don't kind of agree is because the word's kind of. I, mean, I agree. I said that would, I, that's the same advice I would give. That not only are you setting yourself up for failure, but also you're confusing any of those around you on the idea that there really are no differences. And it seemed as though, and now that I know he watches my sermons, I'm afraid he'll watch this and hear it, but maybe good for him. Hopefully it'll be helpful that these are times that are too serious to play around. None of this is games, right? 
We don't know what the future holds for all of us, but all of us could find ourselves in some desperate circumstances in the years just ahead of us where the people around us, just like the people they had around them in Israel at that time, are these people. All of us around us right now. This is no time to go wobbly. This is no time not to take things without the utmost seriousness. And it's not a time for any of us to be satisfied with spending October 16th, 2024 in the same place we are right now spiritually. Instead, this is the time to take that admonition to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that Mr. Ames is so good about emphasizing himself, to take that as the command that it actually is, and to take it as a commission to truly grow. Because our life may depend on it, certainly spiritually it does, but even potentially the lives of others. So I do want to talk about four principles today that will help if we can apply these. I wish I could say I've always applied them, and I haven't. But that's part of why I feel they're that authoritative, because I can often identify my own personal successes and failures with when I took these principles seriously or unseriously. And I've heard them repeated by many others time and time again, and so I do find them worth sharing. So the first principle I'd like to share concerning making sure we are in a better place spiritually come October 16th, 2024, is the idea that we need to act now. You and I, right now, if we want to be in a better place spiritually, the beginning of 2024's Feast of Tabernacles, we must act right now in this opportunity and not wait, not put things off, but act immediately. You know, in ancient Israel, and I think Mr. Hernandez has brought this out. I wish I looked up his sermon. I've looked up a few to reference, but I, I didn't happen to think of his. And I think he says it frequently. But you had these rainy seasons in Israel. And one of them, well, actually more than one, but this one in particular is mentioned several times in the Bible. You'll see the former rains referred to. The former rains. There are these early rains that come right after the feast, generally mid-October to early November. And they were very necessary rains. Part of the uh, Judaistic faith of that time was to pray for these rains at the end of the feast. And these rains right after the feast, from mid-October to early November, these former rains were needed to moisten the soil and prepare it for work. You know, it could be a hard, hard, dry ground there. And these former rains would loosen that soil and moisten it up so that you and your family, who are farming for sustenance and, and also for profit, that it was prepared for you. It's as if God designed the rain right after the feast to prepare the work of your hands, to make it easier to plow the ground and to plant the seed. And it was vital to do so because there was only this brief window when you could because shortly after the former rains came the incredibly difficult winter rains in which there was no work to be done. They generally range from December to February. So you're looking at this brief period from, say, eh, you know, mid, early, mid-November 
to a bit of December possibly, and you had this brief window in which you had to till the ground and plant your seed because when the hard winter rain come, were to come, nobody can work. That's not a condition in which you're going to be able to work. And again, that could actually last through February, taking you into the beginning of spring. And that itself was crucial for the crop cycle. It's as if God designed it this way, that the first lighter rains was meant to prepare the soil, and then you've got this brief window to plant your, to plow and plant your seeds and get your crop in place because the winter rains were crucial for nourishing that seed. And if you did not have your seed in the ground right then before those winter rains, there's nothing to nourish. And if you decide, well, now I've got to wait till after the winter rains and you're ready to start planting your seed after the winter rains, the season has passed. The time for you to take advantage of is gone. You know, a good friend of mine, I bring him up sometimes. He was an old uh, ex-Marine. He used to say, I don't know if he made it up. I can't remember if he gave credit to anybody. So I, he, it seems like he made it up, but he may not have. And some of you might know where it came from. But he would like to talk about what he called the three laws of sowing and reaping. And of course, one of them is certainly rooted in the Bible, uh, that you reap what you sow. If you sow apple seeds, you're not going to grow orange trees, right? If you sow apple seeds, you're going to grow apple trees. But also, you reap more than you sow. Like you sow grains or you sow seed, but the result is a plant that actually produces more. It should encourage us to invest what we have that we might get more. But then the one that tends to haunt me, given my own proclivities sometimes that I've worked against, is you always reap after you sow. You don't get to reap at the same time. If you realize you need something, that's not the time to have planted. The time to have planted is far before. And for that Israelite who did not plant during this crucial window, he had nothing to reap when the time come. He had nothing, there was no providing of second tithe for keeping the next festivals that were coming up. There was nothing provided to feed his family. There was nothing provided for income. He had to plant well before those things were necessary. In a very similar way, our spiritual harvest next feast is going to depend on what we're planting right now. If this were spiritual agriculture, right now we would be in that season. As the former rains have softened the soil, brethren, I hope during the feast that your, the soil of your heart, if you will, has been softened. Mine was. It was encouraged and lifted up by many of the things that I heard. Had to be honest, it was kind of kicked around a little bit where it sort of needed to. If you don't have a feast that beats you up a little bit, you know, you've, you've gone to the wrong feast, you know. I, I feel there were things that corrected me, things that encouraged me, and things that edified me. And I have to admit, I've been in the church long enough, hopefully to have grown. There's times when I've taken those times and I've appreciated them, but I didn't then act on them. And before I knew it, the window closed to really take advantage of what had been done with the soil in terms of what I'm having to do spiritually. And I, I know personally, I don't want to make those mistakes anymore. I want to take advantage of these times. The Bible encourages that. If we go to Proverbs chapter 12, we have a proverb here that applies to hunting. I talked to some hunters there in Canada. I've never had the privilege of actually hunting. I've helped process the meat of a man who did hunt, which a little subservient, but I got to share in the meat, so I didn't mind. It was good uh, and uh, appreciated the deer that he killed on our behalf. 
In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 27, it warns us, Proverbs 12, verse 27, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. That is, you've taken something in hunting, you've put the effort to bring something vital and important before you, vital to you, vital to your family, something you can eat and grow from and digest, but you can't just eat it the way it is. The time we were out is actually my brother-in-law. He's a deacon down in Texas, uh, 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 Jerry Craig. Uh, he'd, gotten, he'd killed two deer, and so all of us are working together. That was the deal. He would shoot them. We would all help process them. And so he had them hung up outside for the gutting and all the preparation. And if he had just said, all right, well, you know what? Let's all go in and watch America's Got Talent, you know? And if we'd have just done that, and it's like, oh, well, now it's kind of late. You know, let's just get up tomorrow morning. And then, oh, I don't know, you know, the Captain Crunch is so yummy. We'll just have another bowl of that or whatever the case is. Well, by the time it's done, what has happened to that meat? Actually, the hunters can tell you a lot of nasty things that can happen to it if you don't get to it. But at the very least, there's animals that want it more than you do, apparently. And you might come out and it's gone. That rather, he says, that's the lazy man. He doesn't take what he got and work with it right now. The diligent man addresses it because he recognizes he only has a small window. That's always the way it is. And having that kind of diligence, the Bible says, is a precious possession to have. It's something that those who have that kind of diligence, they know what it's worth. They don't sacrifice it. They act on it. They use it. They keep it. And same here, we have been hunting, if you will, for spiritual wabbits. Uh, we have gone to the feast and we have gained from what we've been given. Now is the time to not just let it hang there on the tree, but to process it, to meditate on it, to work with it, to use it to reflect on our lives and to shine a light on us so we can see new things. Brethren, if we've gone to the feast and we've learned about the millennium, we've learned more about this way of life, and if we have not changed by that knowledge, that feast has been wasted on us. Does God want us to go to a decade's worth of feast and learn all these wonderful truths and come back and still be the person we were at the beginning of that decade? He doesn't. The feast is there to make a difference in us. And the diligent man doesn't waste time. He would definitely roast what he took in hunting. Uh, also, this passage, just go six chapters earlier in Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I tend to turn to Proverbs 24 for this lesson. It's the tale of Solomon going by the vineyard. Because that one in particular was the one that perhaps roughed me up a little the most many years ago when I really needed to hear it. But this one teaches the same message and has an element I'd like to emphasize. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6. Proverbs 6 and verse 6, we read here, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. You know, the ant doesn't need a boss cracking the whip over its back. It recognizes this is the time to work. There is a time coming when there will be no food. 
There will be nothing available. This is the time where I'm surrounded by plenty. This is the time to go out and work and to gain and to get the food that I need. And so it acts within that window. It continues, verse 6. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. The one thing about armed men when they show up is you are completely at their mercy. And he's saying that unless you act when you should, you will be at the mercy of your needs. You won't be in control of them. You won't be able to influence them. You won't be able to wish them away. You will be at their mercy. You have to do the things that must be done, and they won't be the things you want to do. But when does that really happen? And this is why this passage, as well as Proverbs 24, and those passages, when in my younger days, it took repeated exposure. Sometimes I do feel I am still learning it is that, well, for instance, I remember having a goal once uh, with one of the boys. And the idea was when they were really young, and so therefore I was also really young. And it's like, you know what? I think I can turn one of these kids into a super baby. You know, you read those super babies, they're reading at three or four, or, you know, well, before it may not be the super baby, you say two, two or three, but regardless, you know, you can give them and they can read. It's like, you know, I could probably pull off a super baby, you know, I was thinking, I think I could do that. And so I had, I worked a little plan. Now, maybe God used my procrastination to serve my child because, you know, it's not, life isn't always great for young super babies. But all I know is I had this plan and I worked it out in detail. I mean, I worked out a schedule. I worked it out by month and day. And then I remember, and I was excited and I was passionate about it. But then I remember, oh boy, it must have been eight months later, had done nothing, absolutely nothing. And you can probably pick out the kid now knowing that. No, I'm just kidding. You can't. They're all very capable. I, I appreciate all of their skills and they're very developed. So thankfully, God spared them from my super baby plan. However, it actually ended up being instructive for me because here we are, say, about eight months later, and I had to think, well, how did this happen? I was excited about this plan. When I sat down with this plan, did I literally tell myself, now that I've poured so much time and energy and effort into this plan, I'm going to put it off for eight whole months. You know, was that what I thought? Absolutely not. But I could reflect, and I could remember many of the times when I thought, ah, you know, today's not a really good day. You know, I mean, it was kind of rough at work, and I'd kind of like to relax a little bit, or, ah, you know, that new show's starting tonight. You know, I'd kind of like, like to see that. Oh, dinner was so good. I can't believe how tired I am, like a filled lion from the food from my mighty, I can't remember what they call female lioness, you know, who's prepared this meal. But regardless, it actually shocked me a bit. And then this passage and the one in, in, in uh, Proverbs 24 came to haunt me. Why did those eight months go by like that? Because I had made a daily decision to just put it off for a day. Just put it off for a day. And then after a while, I didn't even have to put it off because I wasn't even thinking of it anymore. Until it came up and it's like, oh yeah, I was going to do that thing. Well, you know, today's not the best day. That happens far more easily than we might think. 
And how many opening night services have I sat there, or frankly, how many Passovers have I sat there as the little cup of wine is headed down the road towards me and had to realize, and I usually did before that because we're examining ourselves before that, but realize I am in the same spiritual state in many ways that I was a year ago, not because I made a decision then to hold off something for 365 days, but because I made 365 decisions, some of which I didn't have to actively made because it was easy at that point to put something off. We need to act now. Our spiritual lives, it's, it's kind of weird. I know we've talked with Mr. Munir about this, saying things like prayer life and, uh, you know, Bible study life, etc., because it's all part of our life, right? But our relationship to God and Jesus Christ and how dedicated we are to the kingdom that Christ is bringing is far too important to ever put any of it off, really. So we need to act now. Okay, the second principle I'd like to encourage is that we need to examine ourselves and to take stock. And it's very easy to say examine ourselves and because it's a phrase that we've heard over and over in the church because it's a worthwhile thing, I've mentioned before, sometimes familiarity doesn't always breed contempt, but it can breed a certain apathy where we hear a phrase and it doesn't register with us anymore. We need to examine ourselves. That is to take a look back at our own lives in detail and take stock. In fact, if you want to use that phrase, take stock. We need to take stock concerning ourselves. I don't want to go into too much detail about this. I, there's a sermon we have, the, uh, the Challenge and Blessing of Self-Honesty. You can find online. I'll go into more detail on that one. But let me go ahead and go back to the idea of the one who's trying to plant seeds during that brief window. He doesn't just foolishly, if he's going to do a good job, run out into the fields with whatever he has. He's working ahead of time to take stock. Probably during the time those rains are falling, he's examining, is my plow sharp? Is it in good shape? Do I have enough hands? Do I need to hire more? Do I have enough seed? Reflecting on last year, you know, last year we got way too much of this crop and I needed more of this crop. He's taking the time to take stock to make sure that effort is very well spent. We need to do the same. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel in chapter 8. And we'll read this comment about David. It's a time when God is just creating this amazing world for King David, giving him success after success. He's clearly close to God in these days. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11. It says, King David also dedicated these to the eternal, along with, I know we're breaking into the middle of the story, with silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the eternal preserved David wherever he went. 
He was walking with God. That's what makes it easy for God to preserve you, is wherever you are, he is right beside you. So this is the condition of his life at this time. And timelines differ that I've seen. Wish I'd have thought to ask this earlier. I'd have deferred to some who know better. But we won't turn there for the sake of time. But most of you are likely familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba and how he saw the wife of one of his very faithful men who sacrificed himself on a regular basis for him, for King David, and ended up committing adultery with her and having him killed on the battlefield, which really is murder by proxy. And that's only in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Timelines differ in estimates of David's life, but it's possible that they were as close as just a couple of years, these events and those. More like maybe five. But then you see this continues. We, we see David again being blessed in the following chapters with success after success after success. God clearly blessing him. And then we have this event where he does such a, such a thing that's just such so foul in God's nostrils. And I read about that and it concerns me. Well, can I predict where I'm going to be two years to five years from now spiritually? David was still king. He still had subdued enemies, but clearly he was not where he should be spiritually in that time. So then I think, well, what was he reflecting on at that time? Was he actually examining himself? To me, it's hard to imagine that he really was in the way that he should. And then I have to ask myself, well, what about the things I actually do know about? And how I'm taking those seriously. Am I continuing to examine myself further on those in terms of what should I be doing? Again, in this sense, the events of the last great day in the land of Israel, in the Middle East, come back to me in terms of the modern land of Israel. This slaughter that took place on the last great day in 2023, I asked myself, well, if you were a leader of modern Israel, if you were a general, if you were in the legislature, if you were their executive, in 2022, on the last great day, if you knew these things were going to happen, what would you start putting into place? If you knew these things could possibly happen, what would you be planning for this time? The 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Had they thought ahead? That's one of the many questions uh, concerning, did they actually, were they slack? Did they grow comfortable? Uh, we don't want to point at a suffering nation right now, but these are the questions their own people are asking. How is something like this possible in a nation known to be one of the greatest, uh, secure, most secure nations in the world with an apparatus that actually spans the whole world of spies, and a military that is second to some only because there's nations like the United States. There are not many nations that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Israel. How could something like this happen? And then I have to again examine myself. Am I essentially, in a smaller version, potentially Israel in 2022? 
Am I looking ahead enough? Am I examining myself enough, frequently enough, to be aware of how the enemy could take advantage of me a year from now? We have an obligation to examine ourselves. Turn to Romans chapter 7, but as we do, I'll remind us of what we often read at Passover, but it's not only is it not just for breakfast anymore, it's not just for Passover, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, where we're told to examine ourselves, whether we are in the faith, and to test ourselves. Romans chapter 7 And only read this as an example to illustrate that the Apostle Paul took his own medicine. The Apostle Paul who tells all of us to examine ourselves, which I've mentioned before is not just a matter of finding the bad things, it's a matter of finding the good things. Testing yourself, like when a teacher tests his or her students, it's not just in the hopes they'll all fail, it's also to find out what has been done well, what perhaps they've taught well, what they need to teach better. And so examining ourselves shouldn't be a matter of finding all of our sins. It should also be a matter of finding where the fruits are growing in us. In fact, maybe we discover we have resources and talents we haven't fully utilized for our brothers and sisters in Christ. What it means fundamentally is knowing ourselves well, even those things that are hard to admit. And the Apostle Paul took his own medicine. He goes on in Romans chapter 7 just to break into it for a brief time. He says, for we all, in this is verse 14, Romans 7, verse 14. For we all know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, well, that's my place. If I, then I, for what I will, I do not do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now he's just giving us a window into himself that it's not that Paul thought he was the highest level of being spiritually. He recognized he was a human being. He struggled with things. And it frustrated him. And yes, it can be frustrating to examine ourselves. Doing it right, we see things we don't like. If you examine yourself and see nothing but things you're like, that's, that's not normal. I'll just say that's not normal. Also, if you don't see anything you like, that is also not normal. Maybe you need to talk to some people who like you and hear from them a little more. But also maybe you need to talk to some people that are frustrated with you and find out why. I've mentioned before, I mentioned it, maybe it's the only reason God gave me a bald spot. But anyway, the bald spot that I have, I like to think it's the only reason. Maybe it's because he thought it made me look more handsome. I have no idea. A lot of us like to imagine bald spot makes us more handsome. But I have yet to see the bald spot with my own eyes. But many of you have seen it. <laughs> you see it when I go away. And you've even thought, I mean, it's not round like most bald spots. It's like a comma or something. You know, what's, what's going on with that? And yet I can't see it. I'm reliant on other people to tell me it's there. And how many kind ones don't bring it up over and over, right? Uh, but yes, it's there. We rely on other people to give us insight on ourselves that we don't have. 
Paul was open to understanding that he was far from perfect, and it frustrated him. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what it felt like to him, because to see sin in us, we recognize what sin is. It's death. It's death. There is a direct connection between sin and death. And to recognize that in ourselves is frustrating and concerning. But then he has the answer to that in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve, myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Important to recognize he's not saying he's giving himself permission in his flesh because he continues in chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to talk about how if we're willing to walk in the spirit with Christ, then we have a confidence before God that we would not have otherwise because we have the sacrifice of Christ that applies to us when we stumble. And we have the aid of Jesus Christ when he picks us up and helps us to move forward. He says elsewhere, we won't turn for the sake of time, but in Hebrews, he says, we can go boldly before the throne of grace, not with our tail between our legs, but with an eagerness to be in the presence of our Father again. Because we're told there that Jesus Christ understands what we're going through. But there's a key to that. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 6. And as we turn there, I don't, I don't want to turn to it, but you might note for later reading and meditating, Proverbs 20 and verse 11. That's where the proverb says, even a child, that was 20 and verse 11, even a child is known by his deeds. I know there's been times when I've deceived myself by what I know to be true and what I care about and what I feel is important to me. And I know, at least I've given myself license in years past to kind of give myself a break on my actions because I know, you know, uh, like it might be a work ethic for you. You know it's important. You know, work ethic is important. You know, giving those who have employed you the value in their dollar. But, you know, it's also nice to play a few video games during the day, perhaps, you know, and take a break. But, oh, but, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. Well, a child is known by his deeds. It's our deeds that actually tell God what we value to what extent by the sacrifices we're willing to make. So what is our actual pattern of prayer, Bible study, fasting, meditation? What are our conversations with other people actually like? And we should examine that on a person-by-person basis. Sometimes we talk differently to one person than we do another. That can be an act of self-examination, thinking of all the people in our lives and how do we interact with them? How do we behave in their presence versus the presence of others? But in Galatians chapter 6, Paul kind of warns us in verse 3. Galatians 6 and verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Uh, We've got to be careful of not thinking we got it all together when, frankly, some of it might be a little loose. He says in verse 4, but let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes doesn't it feel a lot of fun to examine the work of others. 
He's like, man, so-and-so, can we sit down for a while and talk about so-and-so and how terrible he or she is? Oh, the works of so-and-so, indeed of the devil. And Paul says, let each one examine his own work. What we do on a day-to-day -day basis. How respectful are the emails we send to other people? What are the websites we have visited in the last week? What are the television programs we enjoy, the music we enjoy? He continues in Galatians chapter 6. Let's jump to, well, let's go continue where we are. Verse 5. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Again, it's rooted in actual actions we take. It's one thing to have a crop of barley and think to ourselves, you know, I really should have planted something else. We need to know ourselves, and we know ourselves by our actions. God isn't mocked. What we sow is exactly what is going to come out of the ground. And so we need to examine ourselves to understand what that's going to be. And inherent in all of this is a sense that we need to be willing to accept responsibility. There is an attractive siren call uh, to an evil monster that is constantly pulling us in its direction that says, don't worry. It's not your fault. And it's not making that lie up out of whole cloth. There is a certain truth to that sometimes. Uh, children who've been brought up in a terrible way uh, can grow up in some terrible ways. Uh, some of the children growing, we see right now, some of the people that invaded the Middle East, there, sorry, that invaded Israel through those holes in the barriers and such were brought up to long to do this very act. It's not like our upbringing doesn't affect us. It's not like we can actually control the actions of all the people around us. But in the end, we are still responsible because we can't control all of those other people. We have been blessed with freedom of will, and yes, the struggle is stronger for some than others on some things. A burden that is hard for someone else might be easy for me, and the burden that's hard for me might be a snap for somebody else. But whether it's hard for me or whether it's easy, it's still me. And that beast that longs to devour us continues to sing to us, it's not your fault. You just keep blaming this on somebody else. Don't focus on fixing it. Don't strive against it. Just keep telling yourself it's not your fault as you continue to stay far from God in this aspect in your life. God detests that kind of thinking. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we see an example of that. And we don't always apply this to these kinds of circumstances, but I do think that it does, and I do think it's revelatory. And again, the theme here is... as we examine ourselves, accepting responsibility. Accepting responsibility. 
in Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Ezekiel says, the word of the eternal came to me again, saying, verse 2, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord eternal, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man does what is just and does what is lawful and right, if he's not done all these things, he lists all these sins, God isn't going to hold him accountable in the same way. Now, that doesn't change reality. The fact is, a father can squander all of his wealth and leave his children nothing for those fathers that have wealth. Uh, a father can definitely create an environment which is hard for his children to prosper and to grow, just like a father can make it easy for that. But God here is trying to highlight this principle that a son will never suffer spiritually in standing with me if he truly seeks me regardless of what his father has done. Every child has that opportunity to stand before God as upright or rejected. And it's not just about fathers or, for that matter, mothers. It's about anyone. God is trying to say here, your relationship with me doesn't have to be defined by these things. Stop doing that. Stop saying the only reason my teeth are set on edge is because of my father or because of my neighbor or because of my coworker. We stand before God in relation to him and Jesus Christ through our relationship to Jesus Christ. There are no coattails into the place of safety, nor is it possible for someone to bar your way. And it's easy. I know the siren song is very easy. If only it weren't for so-and-so or these actions or this circumstance, I could be in a better place spiritually. But that is a lie. It is a lie of the devil. So I'm trying to make this concrete and give some suggestions uh, in this regard. Uh, first, let me recommend a sermon in an article. Mr. Weston gave us a sermon actually only about six months or so ago. It was before the spring holy days titled Passover Resolutions. Passover Resolutions. And I want to build on something he said in that. And then he actually gave us an article to go with it. Uh, the July, sorry, the March, April 2023 Living Church News titled Let's Go Goose Hunting. And the longer you know, get to know Mr. Weston, the man seems to like goose hunting. There's just something, uh, even seeing the goose in Charlotte has to be difficult on him because like, looks like it might be tasty. You know, I mean, look at it there. Uh, that article as well, let's go goose hunting. He makes this point that if you see a bunch of geese and you are goose hunting, you just fire up at them, even though it's a big sky and there's a, they're right there, maybe even close together. You're not really usually going to hit anything. You've got to pick one. You have to pick one. And he admonished us in the sermon, Passover resolutions, pick a sin that you currently struggle with and focus on it in a special way. It doesn't mean that is the only ingredient that's going to solve the problem, but that is a real way to make progress. Yes, you still might stumble, you still might fall, but stay focused. I didn't grab the name of it, but it was Mr. Weston's last great day sermon. I think it was last great day. It might have been his opening night sermon. I should have tried to grab the name of it, but it was one of the two bookend sermons. 
where he talked about the joy you feel when you've moved past something. When you're able to examine yourself and then see, you know what? I don't have the problem with that that I used to. I mean, I'm going to stay diligent. I don't want to be King David and Bathsheba. I want to stay diligent. But at the same time, I can sincerely say before God with gratefulness in my heart that I believe I have moved past that significantly and there's a joy in that. But that builds on this idea of focusing on something. Ask yourself. Here's something to ask yourself. I found it very profitable. What is one change I can make in my practices, behaviors, or habits that would have the biggest impact on where I'm going to be next feast spiritually? What is the one change? And don't assume it too easily. It takes some thought. Ask for guidance. But what is the one change I can make in my practice, behavior, or habits that I can focus my prayers and say, God, I'm determined to be different in this aspect, to, to have grown to a higher level in this, to reflect you better, or to finally be done with something that doesn't reflect you at all? What is the one change that come October 16th, 2024, it will, be, it will have made the biggest impact in where you are spiritually? Now, it's not wrong to pick two things, just so you know. I've picked more than one thing before. But, you know, it's funny. I have a planner that I use by Michael Hyatt. I think he used to be an executive for Thomas Nelson, but I enjoy the planner. I almost never fully utilize it, but I get a lot of benefit out of how I use it. And it even highlights when you're setting goals. It warns you against setting too many because the next thing you know, you're up firing at a whole bunch of geese. And you're not, he doesn't say that, Mr. Weston says that, but the next thing you know, you're firing at a bunch of geese, not hitting anything. Try to keep your goals and your targets narrow enough that you can actually focus on them. So ask yourself that. And if you want to ask yourself, what is the second thing I could change? I mean, I'm not going to stop you. Feel free. But six months from now, come Passover, if you found you made no progress on either one, maybe you need to get back to that one. All right, the next one I think I can actually go through pretty briefly, this third principle about being in a different place come the beginning of next feast. And that is to pray for God's help to change internally, to change in your heart, not just in your actions. We won't turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, but I kind of encourage every feast or post-feast or after the festivals to read Nehemiah 8 through 10 and then move on to Nehemiah 13. Because what you see in Nehemiah 8 is a people passionate after the fall, the fall festivals. They want to change. They want to grow. They don't want to go into captivity anymore. They're serious about getting close to God. They get together. They sign papers. They agree they're going to do this. We are going to follow God. Then Nehemiah has to go out of town. He comes back, and everybody's doing all the things they said they wouldn't do. It's the Sabbath, and they're mashing grapes to make wine. They're marrying people in the other countries. They've moved things into the, the actual uh, temple area they were working. Everything has gone wrong. It's like while he was gone, someone got the idea, hey, get that list we made. Let's do the opposite. And they just go into the opposite of all of those things. And it seems ridiculous. And it's easy to think of people like that or Esau when he trades his birthright. It's easy to think of them like they're zoo specimens. Like, ooh, what a strange individual. How, how could Israel have done that? We would, I would never do that. They were people like you and me. And they were excited after the fall festivals like you and me. 
So what does Nehemiah do? <laughs> I think it was Mr. Gwen used to make this point. It's pretty interesting because, you know, with Ezra, when he was frustrated with people's sin, he would pull his hairs out of his beard. Nehemiah, when he's frustrated with your sin, he pulls your hair out, you know. So he grabbed the people and by the hair and says, what are you doing? He goes, I don't want to go into captivity again. We don't want to go into captivity again. And so he dragged them all by the hair and he got mad at them. And he enforced, he put this huge hedge, in a sense, around the law. And so for the people that could come in on the Sabbath, because they knew it was essentially mall time on the Sabbath, no one's working. It's a good time to shop, good time to get some more clothes, good time to buy food for the week. And so the Gentiles were pouring in on the Sabbath because it was a shopping day like it is here. So he had to put guards around. He actually had to employ guards on the Sabbath to safeguard the Sabbath. Warning everyone, if you come into this city, I'm going to lay hands on you. And, you know, not to make you a deacon or an elder, you know, it'll be something else. You won't want those hands laid on you. Well, what was that? This is a speculation on my part, speculation. I do believe, though, that part of the external religion you see in modern Judaism and even in Christ's day was an outgrowth of that because change that is only externally enforced is never permanent. And eventually the external reinforcements must be upgraded and upgraded and upgraded because the human will to sin is great and it always finds a way. It always finds a way. It doesn't mean those external things aren't helpful. If, for instance, when it comes to, uh, I love Mr. Dr. Jeff Falls' turn of phrase, when it comes to visual immorality on the internet, there are filters and things you can get. They're helpful. Right? There's different brand names. I'm not here to advertise them, and I'm not sure what they are, but I know they're out there because we go to the NRB and you see booths and such where they're selling them. And they, they, they're meant to provide kind of this hedge, and so parents will use them for their children. But it's important to recognize no hedge is perfect. It's, it can provide at best a delay. It provides an opportunity for second thoughts or third thoughts. What has to happen is the working on the character, asking for a change on the inside. And so in this particular sense, if we want permanent change, if we truly want to be in a different place next feast, we have to focus on internal change. It's important to and ask, rather to ask God to help us with that internal change, because internal change is not something we're good at. We're pretty terrible. And yet God didn't just give us his spirit on the outside like clothes. He actually dwells in our heart. That's literally where he is, ready to engage with us to change that very realm inside of us. So with that said, let me move on to the fourth one. And I meant this to be a practical sermon, and here it'll start to sound maybe boringly practical, and I hope it doesn't. But that is to set goals and make plans. And I mean goals as in you write them down. Write them down somewhere. And if you're like me, I have written down so many goals. In fact, I discovered once goals I wrote down when I was in college. I didn't do a one of them. I, I don't know. There was, I think there were some low-hanging things like keep breathing, you know, or something. I think I did those. But I'm, oh, it was, they were just so huge. Like, oh, I'm going to learn to play guitar. I'm going to learn two languages. I mean, there were just a lot of things. And it was actually humiliating to see them and realize I didn't do any of that. Um, at the same time, at least they existed for me to be humiliated by years later and to take a lesson from and recognize. Uh, you know, your church 
book might be a good place if you're not a normal journaler. Someplace you can post it on a refrigerator or someplace where you'll see it regularly. But even if all you do is write it down, there's something special in that. There's an interaction with that that is important. I would encourage you to listen to Mr. Ames's sermon. No, sorry, read his article. Living Church News, 2002, July, August. July, August, 2002, Achieving Godly Success. Now, you're going to read there, and you're going to think, uh, it's a trick. It's the seven laws of success. You know, it's like being rickrolled in the church. You know, we tell you to go someplace, and you discover it's, oh, it's something else. But there's a reason we keep going back to the seven laws of success. There's a reason Mr. Ames keeps quizzing all of us on the seven laws of success. There's a reason they talk about the seven laws of success in living education. Because if you want to succeed... These are the laws that help make that happen. So set goals and make plans. And when you're setting goals, there's helpful ways to do it and unhelpful ways to do it. The least helpful way is to not write anything down and not actually make a goal. But if you really want to make a good goal that helps itself to contribute to your progress, then there's these acronyms and initialisms that help. Uh, one of them is making a SMART goal, S-M-A-R-T. I believe I've heard Mr. DeSimone talk about these from the lectern. I don't know if I'm going to use the same words he did because I've seen them in different forms. And if I haven't heard him talk about them, I wouldn't have to to know he surely has. It sounds like one of the most Mike DeSimone messages you could possibly give. Uh, smart goals because the man knows how to achieve. Uh, and so he knows these kinds of, these kinds of tools. So S-M-A-R-T is meant to teach us things. For instance, S stands for specific. Make a specific goal. And let me give examples of not specific versus specific. Here is a good goal, but it's not specific enough. Grow close to God. Well, who's going to say, what a terrible idea. How dare you seek to grow close to God over the next year? But what does that even mean, right? How do you turn that into action? That's not really specific enough. What about grow in faith? Well, okay, that's good. That's, it's, it's guidance. It's something we want to do, but it's not specific enough to contribute to your success in growing in faith. Pray more. Okay, that's better, right? Because you're praying a certain amount now, and you want to pray more, right? So now you're headed in better directions. You got to put all these things together, but that is more specific. Study my Bible more. Okay, that is also an improvement. These things will contribute to growing closer to God, for instance. They'll contribute to increasing your faith, but they have the benefit of being more specific. Praying about the work. I want to ask the hands of, of how many of you have prayed about the work over the last uh, week or month or year, because I can reflect, frankly, on my own life when I was in my 20s, for instance, and I have to be honest, I did not pray about the work as often as I should. I was far too worried about me than to worry about the people I was hoping God would call. But that's something specific. Another example. Well, I want to lose weight. Yeah, that's specific, kind of. It's better than I want to be healthier. I was kind of excited this morning because I knew I would gain weight over the feast, and I think I gained one pound. Not bad because I'm trying to lose weight. But this morning in the car, I was thinking, Man, my, my pants, they're like barely staying on. I have really, I have turned a corner. This, and then I realized walking around my, my uh, uh, what do you call them, your braces, my suspenders had come on loose in the back. So I was like, oh, okay. I was a little less excited. Uh, 
but there's lose weight versus lose five pounds by February. Okay, now that's specific, right? That's a little, that can help focus us a bit. In fact, that leads to the next one, something measurable. M stands for measurable. Contrast the goal, I want to pray more, with I want to begin praying every morning, if maybe you don't. That's something you can look back on Friday nights and say, well, how did I do this week? My, the planner I have actually has little things you can check off to let yourself know how you're doing with certain habits. So M stands for measurable. Try to think about how would you even know if you did what this said? Well, if it's measurable, it helps in some way. The A stands for attainable. Or I think I've seen it seen achievable. Thankfully, they both start with A. You want your goal to be something actually attainable. Let's say you're struggling with prayer and months will go by and you have not gotten on your knees before God. Or if your knees don't work anymore, like some of ours sat, whatever it is. Well, you know, setting that goal, you know what? Starting tomorrow, I'm going to start praying three times a day, every single day. Eh, maybe, I mean, maybe you can pull that off, right? But sometimes that's too hard. I'm not saying we should compromise with sin. It's like, I'm going to start... <laughs> Someone's saying, you know what? I need to stop fornicating. I'm only going to fornicate four out of five days. You know, it's like, okay, that, that's not right. You can't do that. We don't want to compromise with sin, but at the same time as we grow, we do need to be realistic and understand what's achievable. For someone who doesn't exercise and want to lose weight, and they set a goal of running a marathon by the end of the week, yeah, that, that's dumb. That's really dumb. You're probably not going to do that. Something achievable. Instead of, if you don't pray at all, Maybe setting a goal that I want to start praying. I want to know at the end of every Sabbath that I can look backward and know that I prayed at least three times that week. I would encourage you to set some more aggressive goals. At the same time, a month of praying three times a week versus haven't prayed in 12 months is progress. It's something that God can work with. The R stands for Relevant. Relevant. The goal has to be relevant to you. Some of you predicted what it might be and you thought, oh, I knew R was something else. Uh, it might be in different lists. Relevant. For instance, if you're a parent, you might want to make a goal. Uh, I want my son to start making A's and B's in his classes. But you know what? You're not really in control of that completely, right? And how does that turn into action for you? How is it specific and measurable for you? Versus the goal... I want to talk to my son every day this week about his homework and see if he needs help. That's relevant. That's within your sphere and what you can do. And then the T in SMART stands for time-bound. Time-bound. It's one thing to say, I want to go walking more often versus I will go walking three times this week. This week versus I want to start walking three times every week. Well, what does that mean? When is that going to begin? When are you going to start? Put some time limit on it and then plan on keeping yourself honest with it and checking. In fact, some people, instead of say smart goals, they say smarter goals. I've never seen someone say the smartest goals, but smarter it's just smarter. There's no lot of bunch of E's. Just an E and an R. Smarter goals. And in that case, the E stands for evaluate occasionally. 
and the R stands to, for revise as needed. You might find your goal was too aggressive. You might find that you personally were too passive. But that's part of self-examination. Evaluate occasionally and revise as needed and you'll find you make smarter goals as a result. And the one other thing I'll say in terms of something practical is to say that if possible, it's helpful to focus on actions you can take and processes in your life than it is to simply focus on results. Like for instance, in terms of losing weight, it's one thing to say, oh, I, I wanna waste such and such in a certain amount of time. And that, that's specific, it's time bound, that can be really helpful, but it's actually more helpful to then do more work and realize, well, if I want to do that, what action does that look like? Is it cutting my calories? Is it making sure I'm more active? And what kinds of activity? And then set goals related to those things. After a certain amount of time, you can evaluate to see if they helped in the larger goal. And if they didn't, you can revise the ER part of SMARTER. But it helps to focus on our actions. Because in the end, what is our desire? It is to repent of things we need to repent of and to change that which needs to change. And if I could suggest uh, two goals to consider between now and Passover as we wrap up. Those of us who are baptized, Passover will be here before we know it. I would encourage you to make some of these time-bound goals something related to Passover. You know that we're all going to be encouraged to examine ourselves on Passover. This is the time to plant the seeds that we can see if we are actually growing come Passover time. To see if the winter rains and the trials that come are actually producing some kind of fruit. And so consider, God has given us a natural time frame for these things. And if we're baptized, I would encourage specifically consider the fruit of the Spirit. That's why I mentioned baptism. If you have God's Spirit, it's supposed to produce specific fruit in our lives. Read through Galatians 5. Consider making some of those evaluation points now, not just when we get to Passover, but involving them in your goals now. If those who are among us who are not baptized yet, now some of us are young. If you're five years old, you shouldn't be baptized. We're not that kind of church, right? Uh, you get into your teenage years and things get more serious, but still we're not talking about children. I'm talking about those of us who are adults and not yet baptized. Uh, those of us, you know, we're in our 30s, we're in our 40s, well, you know, 20s, I would say. I remember when I first started attending, I, I asked a guy who had only been, had been attending two whole weeks before me. So he was the expert. I said, hey, I heard you got to be kind of older in this church before you're baptized because my friend who was in the church told me, oh, yeah, guys are normally baptized in their 30s or 40s. Really disappointed me at the time because I thought, oh. So I asked him, I said, hey, how old are people in this church? And he goes, oh, I think you got to be 30 or so. You, you know, you got to be, I was like, oh, wow, that was 19. I really want to be baptized. And it wasn't until a few months later I thought, well, you know, he doesn't really know anything, you know. And I met someone who, who, was 19, who had been baptized when they were 19. I realized, yeah, I'm kind of stupid. I, you know, I, I felt freer then. I did talk to the minister and, and, and did pursue that. But that said, if we're an adult, we're not baptized yet. I'm not trying to put inordinate pressure on you. But I do want to say the reason you're sitting here is because Christ wants you to be baptized eventually. And so how does some of this play in between now and Passover? I would encourage, if we don't know why we're not baptized yet, we should, that's a perfect place to examine ourselves. If I'm not baptized, can I actually write in words why I'm not baptized yet? 
And do I know what obstacles exist between me and baptism? Again, I'm not trying to put an inordinate pressure, but I do know there's no third way. And Mr. Weston talked about this when it comes to the Day of Atonement. There was one goat for the Lord, and there was the other goat. And there's not a third goat. And the time is coming when that is going to make a difference. And it can make a difference right now. There's no altar call. I'm not going to pull the curtain back. But I, I, sometimes we're not specific about that. And I just want to encourage those who have not yet been baptized to consider why that might be. If you're a teenager, it's not, we don't expect you to get baptized right now. But at the same time, it's still worth meditating on. What is between me? Dr. Scott Winnell has written an article, How Do I Know When I'm Ready for Baptism? I should have written the title down, and I didn't. But it's worth reading and considering. Brethren, the fact is that the days right after the feast that we're living in right now are crucial days for us. Because unless something happens to prevent us from being there, you and I, on October 16th, 2024, will be sitting somewhere and either looking at a screen or possibly seeing it in person, but we're going to be seeing Mr. Weston talking to all of us about the next eight days that lie ahead, that opening night service. I don't know where I'm going to be physically, and you don't know where you're going to be physically, but where each of us is spiritually is what we will work with God and Jesus Christ to decide in the days that follow immediately from today.